Well, let's turn to a politically incorrect passage of Scripture. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 5, glorifying God in your marriage. You know, last week I preached on uh, love out of the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, as we were approaching Valentine's Day. Uh, Today, I sort of want to keep that thought running, talking about marriage. I promise we'll be back in the book of Hebrews soon. But uh, Ephesians chapter 5, glorifying God in your marriage. You know, talking about Valentine's Day and marriages and so forth. We had a great time uh, here last night with uh, Connie's Sunday school class. And uh, we played the newlywed game. And I, you what? Not so newlywed game. Okay, correct title. You're right. And you've seen that on TV back when they would have like three couples. Well, we had what, 11 or 12 couples playing? And Connie and I knocked it out of the park. <laughs> we got so far ahead, nobody could catch us. We, uh, we, we had 180 points. I think the next closest to us was 110 points. Did you have 160? Okay, then they, they were close. But, uh, but you still came in what place? I, I think my favorite thing last night, though, had to be uh, Keith and Robin Booth. One of the questions was, uh, wh- what is the name of the girl that he dated before he dated you? And I heard Robin down there when, when uh, he gave the answer. She said, but you told me back then you and her never dated. <laughs> oh, mercy. <laughs> You probably had some explaining to do when you got home. (laughs) Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Let's pick up reading in verse 21. Paul says, uh, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, we thank you for the holiday that we enjoyed this past week. And uh, I trust that it was a time for couples to express once again and to display their love for one another. We pray for the marriages in our church that you would strengthen them. Lord, for those that have had failures, we pray that they would experience uh, forgiveness in Christ and a new beginning. Lord, for the young people who as they grow up will be praying for you to bring that right mate into their lives. We pray that they would seek you, that they would seek your will. Lord, that, uh, that they would follow your instructions that we find in your word. We pray for their marriages, their future marriages, that those marriages likewise would bring glory and honor to you. Lord, we know that a passage like this is uh, very politically incorrect in the culture in which we live. But Lord, remind us that this is your standard. Your ways are higher than our ways. And the scripture says, you're eternal God. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You change not. Lord, teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, In his book on the book of Ephesians, the great preacher of another era, Dr. Harry Ironside, writes the following. He says, and I quote, It is a remarkable thing that in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul begins with the highest heights of divine revelation. Then in the closing portion, he seems to descend to what we might consider very commonplace. He opens his letter with that which thrills our souls. Our predestination according to the riches of God's grace to a place That angels have never known. He writes of our lofty position as accepted in the beloved. Blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Then he applies this wonderful body of truth to the behavior of a Christian family. It is a poor testimony to talk high truth while living on such a low level in the home. End quote. Dr. Ray Summers writes in his commentary on Ephesians that it's a sad truth indeed that so oftentimes the Christian home and the Christian marriage is the last place that our redemption in Christ seems to impact. And that's certainly not the way that it should be. Now there's five statements I want to make, five introductory statements that I want to make at the very beginning of this message. I want to say that if your marriage has failed, there is forgiveness 
in Jesus Christ our Lord. Also, in whatever state you are in, I want to say that there is no time like the present to commit to having a home life and a marriage that honors God. And then thirdly, I want to say that there are no classifications of Christians. Every believer in Jesus Christ has exactly the same salvation, the same intrinsic worth, the same standing before God, the same nature and resources, and the same divine promises and inheritance. And so whether divorced or separated or remarried or happily married or never married or hoping to be married someday, if you are in Christ, you have the same worth in that regard. Paul says in Romans 8.1, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Fourthly, let me say in matters of role and function, God has made distinctions in terms of different roles. Equality in creation, equality in redemption, difference in roles. And this should not surprise us at all. We see it woven all through society. For instance, the Lord has given rulers in government and they have certain authority over us. Uh, he's given certain authority to, to church leaders. To husbands, he's given the place of leadership. To parents, he's given authority over their children. And to employers, he's given authority over their employees. And so we need to understand that. Identical in nature and creation and redemption, but difference in roles. Fifthly, there is the importance of Ephesians 5.18. Only as we are filled with the Spirit and walking in the power of the Spirit are we going to be able to live out these commands that the Scripture gives to us. Now as we turn now to our passage, we see from, from Ephesians 5 that a Christian's total life is to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Christian's home is to be different. Folks, because the church at large has for so long now been engulfed in modern culture and worldly standards, God's standards have sometimes been viewed as being either out of date or offensive. I want you to think of what's going on in society today. What's society today say about gender? That gender is bad. It's not bad. God created them male and female in his image. He created them. It's good. It's to be celebrated. Think of what society today says about marriage, traditional marriage between a man and a woman. They say, oh, that's bad. God says it's good. I mean, on and on and on we can go across society, the new social norms of how this culture is becoming so anti-God. It's like if God said it in his word, this culture is against it. I hope you see the spiritual battle that we are engaged in. 
As Paul says, we're not, we're not struggling just against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and high places. And because we're a part of this world, we're a part of this culture, we've been engulfed in this cultural battle that's been going on for, for decades and decades. But folks, that should not change us in one regard as to the fact that we serve an eternal God who does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't grow. God doesn't evolve God doesn't change his mind. If he grew or evolved or changed his opinions, what would that imply? That would imply that at some point God was not complete in and of himself. And the Bible says he is complete. He's always been sufficient. He's always been sovereign God. So again, in the New Testament, we see God's higher standard. And never more than in relationship to the Christian home and marriage. Well, this morning, first of all, I want you to see with me that wives are instructed to be respectful and submissive to their husbands. Read with me again verses 22 to 24. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, one thing you and I need to understand as we study this passage, we need to understand what Paul is doing here all the way down through verse 33. He is following uh, a running analogy. And in this analogy, he's talking about husbands and wives and Christ and the church. And he's comparing the two and he's pointing out that husbands have their model. Who is our model? None other than Christ. Wives have their model. Who's their model? Church. The church in her relationship to Christ. So all down through this passage, you're going to see as we read uh, verse after verse in this passage, this running analogy. You're not going to fully understand this passage unless you see that running analogy that Paul is giving here between Christ and the church and husbands and wives. We each have our model to follow. He begins with the ladies. Now, this passage may have arisen, it's believed, because of wrong attitudes. Maybe some Christians saw that Christ had given them a whole new freedom. And so the question that may have arisen at the time was, once I become a Christian, does that change my role in marriage or my responsibility in marriage in any way? Some may have even been going further than that, it's believed. Some may have been saying, am I free to walk away from my marriage? Stay with me a minute. We know that today, going into a marriage, Christians are told not to be unequally yoked. A Christian is not to marry an unbeliever. They'd be unequally yoked. But now, as is so often the case even today, but especially then because the gospel was new. You'd have two unbelievers 
And the two unbelievers, they weren't, they weren't unequally yoked. They were both unbelievers. They would hear the gospel. And then one of them would come to faith in Christ. The other would not. And so now they've become unequally yoked. They were, not un, they were not unequally yoked going into the marriage, but now they are. One's come to faith in Christ, one's not. And so the question was, now that I'm a Christian, should I walk away from my unbelieving spouse and go find a Christian husband or a Christian wife? The obvious answer to that would be no. You stay in the marriage. You have a sanctifying effect upon that marriage and those children. Paul wanted them to understand the principle that he even laid down in Galatians 5.13 where he said, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Well, what's the admonition here to the ladies? This is the one that so many today have issues with. Verse 22 says that ladies are to be submissive to their husbands. Now, actually, the, the verbal part of verse 21, uh, of verse 22 rather, is, is pulled down from verse 21. Verse 21 supplies the verb. That we're to submit to one another in the overall body of Christ. And then he pulls that down into the marriage in verse 22. Wives submitting to your husbands. You see it's one thing to talk in generalities in the church, right? Just sort of a broad stroke of, of the pen. Submit to one another. It gets a little more pointed, a little more personal when we draw it down into an individual marriage in a Christian home. Ladies, you're being admonished here to respect your husband and the role of leadership that God has given to him. Let me, let me give you a phrase that you'll read about sometime. I, I don't want it to go over your head. I'm going to explain what it means. But it's a phrase that's used of this passage. Ontologically equal, functionally different. Ontologically equal, functionally different. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means that in creation, in essence, in redemption, equal. Equal. In function, in role, different. Different roles in the home, different roles in marriage. The command here is also in the middle, in the middle voice. It's an attitude, in other words, that ladies are to voluntarily have. The wife is not being commanded to obey or respect or submit to her husband. She is to do it of her own volitional will. She willingly subjects herself to the one that she possesses as her own husband. Husbands and wives belong to one another. The husband no more possesses his wife than she possesses him. It's a mutual thing. 
He says here, as unto the Lord, she's to do this. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that a lady is to give the same allegiance to her husband that she gives to Jesus? No, that would be idolatry. It means, ladies, your attitude in this regard towards your husband is part of your obedience to Christ. Part of your obedience to Christ, part of your Christian lifestyle rendered unto him is to carry out this admonition given in verse 22. You honor the Lord. You honor the Lord by doing this. Now he goes on in verse 23 to give the rationale of this. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So he begins in this verse with this illustration or analogy that I spoke of. Now in that analogy, no one would question for a moment that Christ is the head of the church. Likewise, he says in the home, the husband has been given the role of headship. He doesn't deserve it. It's not even implying that. It's an order that God has established and God has assigned to him. And ladies, it's not to be offensive either, only to point out that God has established a pattern. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... The scripture says that God is the head of Christ. Now, we know in the Godhead there's equality. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, there's equality. God the Son is every bit as much God as God the Father. And God the Spirit is every much bit as much God as God the Father and God the Son. There, there's equality in the Trinity. But listen to 1 Corinthians eleven three. The scripture says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. There's voluntary submission on the part of God the Son to God the Father without diminishing the role of God the Son. Folks in society today, the word submission or the concept submission is viewed as being what? Bad. Ugly. It's not bad. It's not ugly. Christ the Son submits himself to God the Father while there's equality. It's not bad. Now Paul is pointing out what we learn in Genesis 2 about the order of creation. The woman was taken out of the man and presented to the man as a helper suitable for him. 1 Corinthians eleven eight 8 says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man, but so that the man will not feel superior. What does he do? He takes his life again from woman. In childbirth. You see the beauty there? Of how God has designed things. Mutual dependency. And so there's equality in creation. But different roles assigned. Different but complementary. If not not different. Then why would two even be needed? 
And ladies, God has assigned the place of headship to the husband. And that's why ladies here are being told to voluntarily submit. You're submitting to what God has put in place. Now, by the way, men, it's time that some of us take on the role of spiritual leader in our home and not put all that responsibility off on our wife. There's there's lots of Christian homes that the children wouldn't ever probably be brought to church. They'd probably never have the Bible read to them. They'd probably never be taught anything if it were not for the wife. Guys, it's time we step up to the plate. Verse 24 goes on to say, in everything. She's to submit to her husband as unto the Lord in everything. Now, guys, keep in mind, he's writing to Christians. There's the assumption there, I think, built into it that you and I are not even going to dream of asking our wife to do something that would not be in keeping with her relationship with Christ. Let's move on to talk about the husbands. We see secondly, husbands are instructed to be be loving and sacrificial to their wives. Look at verse 25. He says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now you'll notice right off the bat that the emphasis in this passage is on The role of the husband. In fact, the instruction is three times longer here. Ladies, I guess we're just more hard-headed than you. (laughs) What's the admonition here? Love. Now... We know in in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, there there were different words for love. There's There's one word for love that never shows up in the New Testament. It was very common in secular literature of the day. It was eros love, E-R-O-S, the way we would bring it over into English. We get our word erotic from that, a fleshly, sensual type love. Again, never used in the Greek New Testament. Then there was storge love, family commitment type love. Then phileo love, brotherly love. Like you'd have for a best friend or to a sibling. And then there's agape love. Agape love, the the highest and holiest word for love. The the richest word for love. A self-giving, self-sacrificing type love where you can look at the other person and put your own desires aside and do what you know they need. It's the same type of love that's given in John 3.16 of God when it says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that's the word that's used here 
He goes on to say, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A husband is not commanded to love his wife because of what she is or is not. He's commanded to love his wife because it's God's will for him to do so. If every appealing characteristic of her goes away over the years, you're still to love her even as Christ loved the church. Men underscore those phrases, just as Christ loved the church, as he gave himself up for her. So what what the analogy is pointing out here is true, you may be a leader in your home, but it also points out you're not to carry out that leadership with, with arrogance, with tyranny, or a desire to be served. Christ is your model. Christ is your model. Everything he did, he did for the sake of the church. Christ has headship over the church, but it is the kind of headship that is loving, it is sacrificial, it is giving, it is serving. Husbands, that explains how we are to exercise leadership in the home. And here's the clincher. I think if you and I do verse 25, she's not going to struggle with verse 22, right? Verse 26 and 27, look at what he says there. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, Christ's love like this, his agape love for the church, was not a one-time thing at the cross But it continues. The cross doesn't continue. He he died one time, once for all. But his love, his sanctifying love for the church goes on and on and on and on and on throughout all of history and even all of eternity. Men, we can't say to our wives, Honey, I told you at the altar 30 years ago I loved you. I don't need to tell you again. Or I helped you wash the dishes six months ago. Is that not enough? No. It, our love is to be dim. It is to go on and on and on. Even as Christ's sacrificial love for us goes on and on and on. The rationale, he gives the rationale in verses 28 to 31. He points out that that she's one with you, verse 28, as you love her as you love your own body. You see, there's a union, a bond, a one flesh relationship. By the way, one flesh relationship is not just physical. It's physical, emotional, spiritual. Now, that bond that God creates between a husband and his wife can only be broken. In Scripture, he talks about adultery or abandonment. But even then, I've seen marriages healed and stronger than ever. But when divorce and remarriage takes place without one of those allowances, you might as well be bringing a third person into the marriage. Why? He says, because the two become one. And a piece of paper can't change that. In God's sight, the two become one. 
And he points out when we love our wives, we are loving ourselves. Men, when are we going to learn that? When we love her, we love ourselves. 1 Corinthians 7 goes even further than that. 1 Corinthians 7 points out that your body belongs to your wife. Her body belongs to you. You belong to one. People say, my body's my own. I'll do with it as I want. No. 1 Corinthians 6 says you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 7 says you belong to your spouse. They have authority over you. Men, you love your wife because she's the most important human relationship you have. There in verse 31, he says, Therefore a man, quoting from Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Folks, do you realize that that one flesh description of marriage is not said of any other relationship that we have? Let me tell you where I think couples make some mistakes here. They'll get married, they'll start having kids, and they'll put their marriage on hold until they get the kids raised and out of the home. And then after they get the kids out of the home, they look at one another kind of like, who are you? What's happened? They've They've not kept that bond what it should be. By the way, your kids will gain security if you do keep that bond what it should be. I've also seen couples where, I'll just give an example of men, maybe the man can't cut the apron strings with mama. And the parents, and this can go both ways, parents can, you know, that can mess up that bond. Folks, there is no other human relationship described in the Bible by that same phrase, the two become one. It is only said of marriage. You raise your kids, it's an important stewardship God's given you, yes, but you don't let it take precedence over the marriage. You honor your parents. The Old Testament makes it clear and it's repeated in the New Testament. You always honor your parents. God would have you do that. But again, they shouldn't even come between you and your mate. No other human relationship on the face of the earth is described in that same term, one flesh. Says something about the importance of marriage. It's God first and then your marriage. Now... Let me skip over a, a moment to First uh, Peter chapter 3. Peter has some wonderful things to say about this as well. In First Peter chapter 3 he says, Wives likewise be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." Some religious groups have used that wrong. They've used this passage here to say that a woman shouldn't wear um, makeup. She shouldn't wear jewelry. She shouldn't have nice clothing. That's not what 1 Peter 3 is teaching. Ladies, he's just saying 
that the outward is not the emphasis. Your heart is the emphasis. You are to be the type of person on the inside that your husband will cherish through the decades. Then he says to to husbands, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since there are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Weaker vessel here is just talking about physically. By and large, as a general rule, I've certainly seen, seen exceptions to it. I've seen some ladies I wouldn't tangle with. But by and large, men are the stronger sex. And some of the ancient men would take advantage of their strength over their wife. And Peter is saying to Christian men, don't you dare do that. That would be highly inappropriate for a Christian man to try to physically dominate his wife in some way, the way the ancient men would do. He says, you grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, and then the motivation is what? So that your prayers won't be hindered. Wow, think about that. Have you ever felt like you prayed and your prayer went up, hit the ceiling, bounced right back down? Well, guys, maybe it has if you're not right with your wife. If you're not right with your wife, Don't think you're going to go into your Bible study time and prayer time and everything's going to be okay there. Because it's not. Your prayers are going to be hindered. You can't be right with Christ if you're not right with Jesus. Now, one more thing in closing, and this, this is nothing new to some of you. It will be to others. Turn with me back to uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. You remember what's happening in Genesis chapter 3. It's the fall of man. Satan comes into the picture. The man and the woman listen to Satan. There's the fall, and then God comes and pronounces the curse. Now, keep in mind, again, what's going on in Genesis. The man was created, then the woman. God put them together in that first marriage ceremony. And they they complemented one another perfectly. Then the serpent comes into the picture. The devil, and they listen to him. And then in Genesis 3, God goes on to pronounce a curse. Now, I'm going to tie this in to what we're talking about in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 what he's talking about, and I'll explain this, is how even though we are a part of fallen humanity, when when you are redeemed in Christ, that redemption can affect your marriage again, should affect your marriage in such a way that you can go back to God's original blueprint for marriage. You can, go, you can get a little taste of heaven in your marriage, even in a fallen world, and go back to how God designed things to be in the beginning. But look at what he says in verse 16 to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Couple of ways scholars look at that passage, your desire shall be for your husband. He's just said childbirth is going to be really painful. 
Yet in spite of that, your desire shall be for your husband. In other words, despite the pain that's going to come along nine months later after intimacy, you're going to crave that intimacy with your husband anyway. Your desire for motherhood is going to be so strong, you're going to desire your husband. And that's one way that it's a difficult Hebrew phrase not used very often. It's, so scholars wrestle with it. Probably the better way of looking at it ties in to chapter 4. Because again, it's part of a curse. When he says here, your desire shall be for your husband, I think most husbands would say, how is that a bad thing? How is that a part of a curse? I hope she does desire me. And yet it's given here as a bad thing. Same word is used over in Genesis 4 where God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you. It desires to control you, to master you, to dominate you. But you must master it. And so what Eve is being told is that from henceforth as a result of the fall, your desire is going to be for your husband. That is your husband's place in the home. You're going to desire his God-ordained place in the home. But then he goes on to say, he's not going to let you have it. And the word he uses for rule here is not the positive word like in Genesis 1 when Adam and Eve were given dominion over creation, a positive dominion to to lead the animal kingdom and be stewards of the earth. It's, It's not that at all, but rather what's used here is the negative or a very authoritarian, dominating type. So you're going to desire his God ordained place now in the marriage. He's not going to let you have it, even if he's got to dominate over you and so what Eve is being told here is because of the fall the battle of the sexes has begun Genesis 1 and 2 they were created to be in harmony Adam headship but a headship carried out in love putting Eve up on a pedestal uh, sacrificing for her looking after her she voluntarily submits to that, respects that. But now that's gone. Now you got this tug of war beginning in marriage. And that's so oftentimes what we see in the world. A marriage that ought to be this is this. What Paul is saying in Ephesians 5, he's carrying Christian couples back to God's original design And saying that because of redemption in Christ, marriage can once again be like Genesis 1 and 2. Man's been given leadership, but it's a leadership carried out with agape love. Where he carries out his leadership position looking after her. And she voluntarily respects that and submits to that. So what Paul, again, what he's saying is redemption in Christ, 
You know, we kind of have this attitude sometimes. I come to church, look after my spiritual life, go home, and that's a separate category. No, 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 folks. It's not a separate category. Everything about life, including your home life and your marriage, your redemption in Christ is supposed to impact it. So again, Paul is saying because of your relationship with Christ, a Christian couple can go back to the way it was intended to be. Ladies, I hope you see in this scripture you have your pattern, the church. Men, I hope you see in this scripture you have your pattern, your model, Jesus. And I would simply ask each of us this morning, how are you doing at following your model? How are you doing? Where is your life and your marriage looking more like the world's way than what God teaches in His Word? Well, there needs to be repentance then. There needs to be repentance. Men, you follow your model. Ladies, you follow your model. And it's amazing what God will do in your marriage. And it's amazing the witness that you will have to others. Somebody says this morning, I, I need to, there, there, there needs to be a change in my marriage, okay? Change your marriage by changing yourself. Change yourself. Oh, I'm going to wait till he does it. No, don't wait. I'm going to wait till she does her. No, don't wait. You do what the Lord is telling you to do and see what God does in your marriage to transform your marriage. And some of you this morning are unequally yoked. And you need to give your mate the gift of a Christian spouse. The Holy Spirit's been working on your heart maybe for months. You need to come to Christ. Greatest gift you'll ever give to them. Now, I opened with uh, Harry Ironside. I closed with that. On one occasion, he pastored the Moody Bible Church, that famous Moody Church in Chicago. A couple wrote him, a missionary couple in pagan lands, missionary couple in pagan lands wrote him a letter one time. And here's what they said in their their letter. How we wish that some Christian people could come and live among us, even if not to engage in direct missionary work. There are different ways by which one might make his living among this semi-civilized people. For instance, we might have a Christian dentist and his wife, or a Christian worker in leather, a shoemaker or harness maker with his wife and family. It would mean a great deal to us to have a harmonious family join us here, for we can conceive of nothing that could so commend Christianity to our people as just to see a Christian family living according to the New Testament. A Christian husband loving and honoring his wife, 
a Christian wife living in sweet and beautiful subjection and loyalty in her home. Christian children who really delight in obedience to their parents. Parents who love their children and seek to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This would be so utterly different from anything our people have ever known or seen. Your marriage and my marriage should be a witness, a strong witness of the love and grace of God to an unbelieving world.